0: I was just about to say, I would like for Alan to, the next time he's trying to corral everyone here, somebody apologize for how long it was taking to get people back in, which was no problem at all. But imagine if Alan just started sort of, you know, quietly with a little bit of ascension, just began the Darth Vader. That always gets people's attention. All right, well, let us jump into our next Lesson, and I'll ask if you will to please open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. All the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Lord, again, we ask your blessing upon our time together, that as we think not simply about your word, but uh, even now for a couple sessions, think about those uh, who have labored in your word, uh, those who've helped to shape our sense of understanding of what scripture teaches. We pray, Lord, that your name would be honored among us, that you'd help us to see the rich inheritance that we have in the Reformed faith and how... Uh, It is truly the case that to be reformed is also to have a great zeal for the Great Commission itself. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I should make a humbling confession as we get going. Uh, In my pocket uh, is uh, something I absolutely love. It is the emblem of my uh, vanity, my frail ego. I'll go ahead and show you what it is. It's reading glasses which I'm supposed to be wearing, like I can so just barely see my Bible. I spoke at a, a seminary graduation a, a month or so ago, and the lighting was just a little bit dimmer than this, and I ended up having to sort of loosely paraphrase, paraphrase what I was supposed to be reading. It was so humiliating. Uh, so, so I want you to be honest enough with me. I, I, if I start misreading things, I want you to tell me, no, that's not what the Bible says. I don't want you to think I'm up here just butchering the text uh, without any regard. Um, so anyhow, the problem is, I know this is not something you need to hear about, but I'm telling you anyway. The problem is I'm farsighted, sighted and I like to look at you. Not that you're all good looking, but I like to look at you when I'm preaching. And so the way that I preach is my eyes kind of bounce quickly off my page, and then I like to look at people. You should also know that I'm farsighted, uh, as I just mentioned, and so what that means is the people up here on the front row could be asleep or picking their nose. I would have no idea. But if you're on the back row and you blink, I might be able to tell you how many times you did so during my lecture. Uh, so in this world, things are reversed. If you're trying to hide from me, you need to be right there. And if you're trying to be hidden and you're in the back, I've got you. So Tammy, I saw that blink. All right, so uh, this is a lecture, um, a lecture, a lesson. What should I call this? What, is, what, do you, what do you call it at camp? What is this? It's not a sermon. It's not a lecture. What is this? A lesson? Okay, a lesson that works for me. All right, so this is going to be uh, on a fellow named John uh, Calvin. And uh, what I like to call this is Calvin the Evangelist. And so let me tell you what my goals are for the session this morning and for two that I'm going to do tomorrow morning. I'm going to be dealing with some people that we call uh, great fathers of our faith. Uh, John Calvin and a couple guys tomorrow morning. And one of the arguments I'm going to try to be making is... That if you think of yourself as being a Reformed Christian, which I hope you do, and you ought, uh, then then you ought to love the idea of the Great Commission and have great zeal for the Gospel itself. uh, Because to be Reformed uh, means uh, to have a great zeal for the Gospel and the Great Commission. And uh, we'll see that particularly uh, in the fellow we're discussing now, who is uh, John Calvin. Now, I'd like to set this up by saying, I I think it's fair to say that people have misunderstandings about who Calvin is, uh, misunderstandings about what Calvin thought, and what flows from that might be a misunderstanding of really what it means to be a Calvinist. So my guess is if you've grown up in the OP or been around for a little while, if I were to ask you to raise your hand if you think of yourself as a Calvinist or not, a lot of you would raise your hand Uh, I'm not going to do that, this isn't like a Presbyterian altar call, Um, I'm not above it, but I'm not doing it right now. So a lot of us would identify ourselves as Calvinists, and uh, what I'd like to really poke at a little bit is to say, okay, that's great, but do you you really know John Calvin, and do you know him uh, as it regards the idea of evangelism in particular? Uh, So, uh, let me tell you what a few folks who are are not friends of John Calvin uh, have had to say about him. And I'm borrowing this from a lecture I heard uh, in a class many, many years ago from a fellow named uh, Frank James. At least a couple of these uh, quotations I first heard from him. Okay, so uh, a number of us may have heard of the historian uh, Will Durant. And uh, he had this to say of uh, your hero, John Calvin. We shall always find it hard to love the man John Calvin, who darkened the human soul with the most absurd and blasphemous conception of God in all the long and honored history of nonsense. So now you're going to go home and throw away that book set, right? Well, first of all, let me tell you what I love about that quote is the use of language. Like, I, I just, I love good language. That's, that's a great use of words in all the long and honored history of nonsense. What a great phrase, right? In the history of nonsense, John Calvin stands at the top, uh, according to uh, Durant. But notice again uh, who darkened the human soul with the most absurd and blasphemous, that's never a good thing, conception of God. Uh, so, for people who are outside the Reformed faith, for people who are no fans of John Calvin, uh, they have the impression that Calvinists believe something about God that is absurd, that is blasphemous, that darkens the soul, and the upshot will be ultimately uh, quenches any thirst for meaningful evangelism. So, in short, if you're a Calvinist, uh, you don't like evangelism because Calvin himself was opposed to it, and is just like the opposition uh, to evangelism and a right view of God. Oscar Fitzer, a Freudian psychologist, uh, said this, It is a fact that Calvin's own character was compulsive and neurotic, and that he transformed the God of love, as Jesus taught, into a God of wrath and hate. Right? come from, them's fighting words. <laughs> it's on, Right? Uh, it's interesting to me that he's, he can say that it's a fact that a man that lived several hundred years before him, I, how do you like categorize somebody's personality as a fact, but uh, this guy does so, uh, that Calvin's character was compulsive and neurotic. Those are never complimentary terms, right? Uh, that Calvin was unstable in his mind, unstable in his heart, unstable in his emotions, and that even worse, he transformed the God of love, as Jesus taught, into a God of wrath and hate. Now, don't dismiss these things too quickly. Here's, here's the point. Uh, there are a lot of people that have the feeling that if you embrace Calvinistic ideas, you turn the God of love into a God of hate that just doesn't like people, and he's kind of always grumpy and in a bad mood, and he really doesn't want anybody to go to heaven. So these are the sort of things that people are saying. The last one is actually my uh, my personal favorite uh, because it comes from Jimmy Swaggart. Now for the 10 of you that know who I'm talking about, this guy is kind of a nutcase. Uh he's uh he's not really well known as a good theologian. He's actually kind of a he's kind of a knucklehead. Uh he's told some pretty bad things and and um not really a great guy. Uh but it was fun to say that my favorite quote here is from Jimmy Swaggart. So Swaggart said this, Calvin, I believe, has caused untold millions of souls to be damned. I didn't know a person could do that. I didn't know one man could cause untold millions of souls to be damned. Now again, before you just dismiss it, why might such a thing be said? Well, here's the point. Uh, it seems to be suggested that Calvinism leads to this sort of cold indifference to people being saved. And so the untold millions being damned are damned because people just kind of grow cold and indifferent to the idea of evangelism. And since apparently they won't get saved unless, you know, we do it. Uh, ultimately, God's not sovereign. I guess now we are. Uh, in Swagger's view, Calvin has caused untold millions of souls to be, uh, to be damned. Now, you might say, okay, that's all kind of uh, hard language to say about John Calvin. Uh, but uh, remember this. I was talking to somebody a little while ago who's really good at drawing. And I, I think I'm right in saying, I hope she won't correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but that a a caricature, a caricature exists because the real thing exists. Where's Kara at? She's in her somewhere, now I've got her on the spot. Yeah, is that right? So if you're drawing a caricature of a thing, if you draw a caricature of me and you make my ears big and my my nose big and all that kind of stuff, well, the picture is not me. It's a caricature and details have been exaggerated, right? But the picture is a picture of me. A distorted one, but nonetheless one based on at least certain perceptions Of the real thing. People have these perceptions of Calvinists. People have these perceptions that Calvinists are cold hearted and indifferent to things like evangelism. And what I would like to do is win that back. Uh, And I'd like to do it by trying to say number one, these people that I've just quoted clearly do not know John Calvin. Uh, but maybe it might be helpful for us to get to know him a little better ourselves and that what we might find is that he actually uh, had a real heart uh, for missions, for the Great Commission, and for evangelism. So I'd like to quote now uh, one other guy named uh, Charles d'Esperville. I'm not going to quote him, just allude to him. Uh, Charles d'Esperville was a French pastor uh, in the time period uh, that Calvin was alive uh, who wrote a lot of letters and uh, tract-like things the christians who were suffering uh, back in this time christians very often if they wrote letters if husbands wrote to their wives if pastors wrote to their people if missionaries wrote back to their sending churches they had to use pseudonyms fake names to protect themselves protect their families and protect their churches and charles de esperville was a newly reforming thinker and pastor uh, who reached out to people who were suffering in harm's way and encouraged them uh, to persevere for the sake of the gospel some of them uh, were literally in dungeons and being told to recant or die And they reached out to Charles de Esperville and said, what shall we do? Shall we recant or shall we surrender our lives to the gallows? Uh, Shall we continue on in this labor of uh, gospel proclamation or shall we turn back for peace and safety? And what uh, Charles de Esperville said consistently in very beautiful, tender and pastoral words was, continue on for the cause of Christ. It's better to suffer and die for Christ in this world to live a long time having denied Him. Now, uh, what you might not know about Charles de Esperville is that he actually has another name. Guess what it is? John Calvin. Uh, Calvin himself was one who was so threatened by the church around him that in order to protect himself and people he loved and pastored, perhaps even his own family, uh, he adopted this name and he wrote letters and and tract-like things uh, in order to try to encourage people. And uh, I think this begins to paint maybe just the, the idea that you might not know him as well as you think, but if you get to know him a little better, you might like him a whole lot more. Now, now to be fair to Calvin, uh, Calvin was not uh, a real outgoing sort of guy, if I understand his biographies pretty well, and I've read uh, a handful of them for sure. He was actually kind of a retiring, nerdy person. I, I just sort of picture him as sort of a, a, a frumpy, overly scholastic kind of guy uh, who, as this whole thing was exploding called the Protestant Reformation, he wasn't looking for trouble. He wasn't a brazen knucklehead like me that likes to run into trouble and kind of figure out what to do when you get there. Uh, He he was a retiring, careful thinker that uh, wanted to go off into the hills and drink uh, nice French wine and read and write books. And you kind of can't blame a guy for wanting to do something like that. The problem was this Reformation thing was exploding. And in the city of Geneva, that uh, had been sort of an epicenter for missionary training. They went basically from like, you know, in the rough area of like, you know, hundreds of pastors, like 10 overnight uh, in a wave of persecution that just swept through the area, and it created this real crisis. Where are we going to get pastors and missionaries and uh, teachers and preachers of the word that will go out and faithfully proclaim, even pastor here, and faithfully proclaim? And it's in that context that Calvin, he's just kind of picture riding on his horse. and He's headed to the pretty little hills over there. All of a sudden, this fiery redheaded guy named Pharaoh says, look, we need help. You're the man. You're coming here. Or you're going to hell. Sometimes you just got to be straight with people. You just tell it like it is. And so Calvin surrendered to this plea from Pharaoh, and he went to Geneva, and he began to minister there. Uh, Calvin, at age 27, accepted this. Uh, Calvin married a widow who had uh, two children. I I find this pretty endearing, uh, this young, uh, budding theologian married a widow with two children. Uh, This is kind of an intimate thing for me. Uh, She and Calvin had one child who died prematurely. And uh, there are a number of ways I could illustrate that the church in Geneva was not really kind to Calvin. Uh, Calvin's name means bald, if I understand. I don't speak French, but I think that's right. Is there a French person here? I think it does mean bald, which just makes the name really funny, right? Hi, my name's John Bald. It's just a weird way to get going conversationally. You might find it a little distracting. Well, even more so, uh, Calvin and his relationship with the people at Geneva, uh, at times they were really mean to him and just quite nasty, to put it bluntly. Uh, They did things like they named their dog after him. Now, imagine naming your dog after your pastor. That might sound like a term of endearment. But when the Genevans did it for Calvin, it was a way of insulting their pastor that when their dog ran by, they'd shout out their pastor's name and he'd get the point. That's what I think of you. Uh, They... They failed to pay him on multiple times. They chased him away once, literally chased him uh, out of town. He had to bail and relocate for a while. He would later come back, although his arm once again being twisted, he said, I think I'd almost rather go to hell than back to Geneva, but to Geneva it is. But probably one of the things that troubles me uh, most is that uh, when the one child that he had with this widow died, uh, his congregants mocked him. People in the city and in the church, mocked him. <clears throat> it was not an easy go for Calvin. Uh, this was not a guy who really, even if I can say it like this, wanted to be a pastor. Of the hills... And the wine and the books, that's where he was headed. And uh, God called him into this. And sometimes the church can be really kind to his pastors. Sometimes the church is just cruel. And uh, this is at least one example of Calvin enduring, uh, I think, something uh, remarkably unkind from the hand of people who he was laying down his life for and seeking to love. I'm going to come back to that point about Calvin and his one lost child. Uh, but he and his wife were tireless servants who during their ministry, you think of John Calvin uh, as a book writer, right? And he was. He wrote tons of stuff, some fantastic stuff. But again, little pieces about his life that you might not know. They took in orphans. They took in uh, seminary students, probably more high maintenance than orphans. We have some in our church and. I think I've been one for 100 years. My wife and I've been married now for 21 years, and the nice part about it is I'm just now getting to the point where we've been married a couple years longer than I've been in school. At one point, we'd been married 18 years, and I'd been in school those entire 18 years, and it just didn't sound right. So now I'm thankful to say, no, it's 21 and 18. Thank you for putting up with that, honey. So Calvin and his wife took in uh, many orphans, ministerial students. Calvin would often disciple these men living in his, in his house, uh, right there at his dining room table. He called her, uh, her the best friend that he ever had, uh, had uh, nine years uh, with her. Uh, Calvin was obsessed with his work. Uh, he was a tireless workhorse for the kingdom of God. Eight hours before his death, he was still dictating his work. The day of his death, he preached that morning and died that evening. And I'm going to quote from his last will and testament here uh, at the very end. Uh, But when you think about Calvin, I I want you to remember, this is a guy who wrote, but he didn't really write as a a theologian. See, I think part of the problem is when I say Calvin, you think theologian. When I say Calvin's books, you think high-end theological stuff. But if you've ever read his institutes, you'll know they began kind of like tracts, explaining to lay people the basics of the faith defending it. He devoted uh, one issue of them uh, to the king of France with the hope uh, that the king of France would read this and look fondly upon it because his name was there inscribed at the beginning. Uh, Calvin was pleading for the life of his people as well as pleading for the gospel itself at a time when if the king didn't like what you were doing or believing he could literally say off with your head and Onto the bowling lawn it goes. Uh, Calvin was literally pleading for the life of his people, but even more so pleading for the souls of those that were still trapped in the darkness of a very unclear gospel. Uh, In his own way, nerdy scholar perhaps he was, he was nonetheless uh, really a man who not only loved the church, he loved the gospel, and in many ways laid down his life for the sheep there in Geneva, much of his writings really began as simply trying to explain the basics of the faith to people that were new to the faith. Not him doing high-end theological work until he was forced into those corners. And I think that's a very helpful way uh, to think about him just a little bit uh, differently. Uh, Another little cameo of his life that I just find uh, really remarkable and, and impressive is that during this time, the plague uh, just kind of rolled through Geneva like a tidal wave, rolled through Europe, right? And you know stories about the plague. When I say plague, you think death, right? You think rats. You, know, you picture bodies with sores on them. Uh, you try to imagine, you know, how does a mom care for a kid with the plague? How does a husband care for a wife with a plague? How does a pastor care for people when all of a sudden the plague ravages your church and you have people quarantined in a building that are all sick and dying with the plague. And you have other people who are alive and literally scared to death that they might get it. Well, there's a good bit of separation between the two. And at that time, the city council said to Calvin, look, we don't want you visiting people with a plague because we need you too much and we're afraid that you'll catch it and that you'll die. And he responded really wonderfully, very uh, tenderly and pastorally. And he said, what kind of shepherd would I be? if I wouldn't go and visit the most broken of the sheep. And so he literally, as it's described uh, in more than one biography, would step across the bodies of dead people to get to the living ones and minister the Word of God to them. Share the Gospel with people. Lying. Can you imagine how nasty that place would be? And, And this is the heart of John Calvin. I'm not sure who these other people I quote at the beginning are referring to this is the heart of john calvin who bled out for the gospel who bled out for the sick the broken and the bruised who bled out for the church who bled out for the mission field who bled out uh, for people in and outside the body of christ that they might come and actually hear the truth uh, that was being proclaimed in a time when people desperately needed to hear it uh, Calvin once wrote to a man uh, who was strongly considering leaving his church because uh, the, the persecution, the political persecution was coming so close to that area the guy knew he was a marked man, and it wouldn't be long. They'd be taking this man, possibly his family, and uh, Calvin said, "No, stay put. Suffer for Christ's sake." Now you might disagree with that. You might call that bad advice, but you can't dismiss well, you can't dismiss it as fearful advice. The guy who steps across dead bodies to visit live ones can say to another man, you need to be willing to lay down your life for Christ too. And in a day and age where people are dying right and left, you know, death was overly familiar. It's just what was going on. And to die for the gospel, uh, how much better uh, is it to die for Christ than to die for something silly? And so Calvin encouraged this man uh, to persevere, not to leave his flock. Uh, He wrote to a a wife who was married to a Catholic man uh, who was seeking to divorce her because she'd become Protestant. And he just wrote a wonderfully pastoral, fatherly letter to her disregarding Christ as her true husband. Don't abandon your profession of faith for the comforts of this world. Cling to Christ. He is a faithful husband and he will never leave you nor forsake you, even if your earthly husband does. Now, again, maybe disagree with the advice, but I th- hope you can at least sense the heart behind uh, the advice. So, when you think about what is going on here in this period, Calvin is not only evangelizing, he's training evangelists. I, and I, I just appreciate this a lot. His life is defined by training evangelists to go out and to proclaim the gospel and to carry forward the work of the Reformation. Uh, You have to remember that in this time period, uh, the world is expanding rather quickly. A lot of places are being discovered. Uh, A lot of business is expanding. But at the same time, uh, you have plagues going through. You have conquering hordes, Turkish invasions, all all these different things uh, that are going on. Uh, You have European kings pitted against other European kings, each of them trying to build gorgeous buildings over here and things for their own name. Oh, and by the way, uh, you might need armies to fight your wars. And so how how can you talk a man into laying down his life and walking away from his family uh, to go fight a king's war? Well, if you kind of manipulate him spiritually, you might be able to get hold of him. And so uh, just a brief reflection on uh, Luther, just a line or two. Uh, Luther abhorred the fact that secular emperors, that is kings, Had taken up military causes under the name of Christendom. In other words, my war is God's war. Because I declare war on this king, God is at war with that king. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys, and the way to go to heaven is to get behind me. And Luther said, This is horrible. Uh, there's clearly a biblical distinction between you know, the church and the state. And whether you like all the nuances of things like uh, two kingdoms or not, this is where the idea came from. And Luther felt there was great confusion uh, between the kingdoms and the swords that people were being manipulated into not only service, but into giving up their life for secular kings. Luther said this, and I love this line, we must carry forward among the heathen the preaching which the apostles began. Well, Luther was a big influence on Calvin. And Calvin saw this, uh, this obligation to carry forward not only what the apostles began, but the Reformation was beginning to see exploding. People were coming out of the dark. They were hearing the gospel in Christ. They were seeing something that was worth not only living for, but dying for. And the people were dying, were dying in the Lord. And that was beautiful. It wasn't easy. But it was Beautiful. And so he gave his life to the dedication, to the training uh, of these ministers. They all believed that the church had become so corrupt that only a thoroughly evangelistic enterprise could save it. I want to drill down on that for a minute. I'm fairly persuaded that the church right now is in like just a total mess. Okay, Uh, So I'm not trying to sound uh, smart or anything, because I'm really not. Um, In fact, I'm I'm probably proof that a caveman can get a Ph.D. So, So Mark, there's hope, and hang in there, buddy. (laughs) So I did my PhD in in Holland, I I studied uh, preaching Christ in the Old Testament in a postmodern context, really into preaching Christ in the Old Testament, uh, really into postmodern philosophy, literature, and thought for a lot of reasons, uh, largely because I kind of am that kid, like from the story last night, I am Gen X, born in 1972, right, I'm the embodiment in a lot of ways of postmodern problems. Okay? Uh, if you're young and you struggle with authority, like you struggle trusting your parents, your church, uh, all those sorts of things, that, that's my life story in a nutshell outside of Christ and to try to reach people with those same struggles is why I like to read that stuff. Luther and Calvin in their day felt that the church had become so dark that the only way to really fix it, now be careful, follow me here, maybe you'll agree, maybe you'll disagree, you, you are free to be wrong. So uh, they believed that the only way you could really fix this thing was through evangelism. In other words, what the church needed to hear was the gospel and that the way forward was to see people come to Christ and get discipled in the truth. Now, I'd like to ask question about today, right? Uh, when I look at the church today broadly, the things that make it onto TV, the books that become Christian bestseller, which probably should be like an oxymoron, right? The the things that are really popular today. I'm, I'm situation critical, very concerned. I'm really concerned. And if you look at where the church was a couple decades ago, look where it is now. By the time you who are half my age, I'm 46, so you who are 20 and younger, by the time you're raising your kids, take your time, there's no hurry on this, By the time you guys are raising your kids, you're going to have a mess on your hands. And it's on my watch in a certain sense. And pastor's today with me uh, to try to get into this. But this is going to be on your shoulders. Some of you young men, one day one of you is going to be standing here. You're going to be the guy in the back imitating Darth Vader all too naturally because it's not just a great deep voice, it's actually asthma. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's fantastic. If they're good, I'll share. So, what what does the church need today? If you would agree with me that the church around us has really gone, uh, is going the way of the world right? Uh, We've abandoned a lot of the good categories of sound theology. We've abandoned a healthy doctrine of the church. Uh, Postmodernism has spilled over into whatever it is that millennials think theologically. And I I try to study that. I'm not being dismissive. Like I'm really trying to figure it out. And I I feel like I'm on one of those rides where you just get spun faster and faster. And you have no idea where you're going. And finally, when it stops spinning, you're still spinning. That's kind of how I feel right now trying to figure this out. And the only thing I'm confident about is the gospel. And the only thing I think you and I ought to be confident about is the gospel. The way forward is the gospel. The way forward uh, is not simply even trying to tell our evangelical friends what's wrong with what they're doing. Perhaps there's a place for that. I think a big part of what we need to be doing as Reformed Christians is taking the high ground with the gospel itself Leading people to Christ and discipling them. I'll even say a word to pastors. Our our church uh, is blessed with a lot of uh, new conversion growth. It's wonderful, and I have to say this: I've only been pastoring seventeen years. Never more do I feel like a little boy than when I come to Southern California and come into the presence of men who were thirty feet tall. uh, When I felt like I was just growing my first beard theologically. And yet, I have been pastoring now 17 years. And I can say this pretty confidently. The easiest people to pastor are new Christians. Don't be offended if you're an older Christian. But here's the point. There's something beautiful and exciting about that. I just discovered Jesus. I'm I'm like Bambi. I'm Twitter-padded here. I'm stumbling over myself. And you can have that at any age, of course. Uh, But you know, right? Right? Uh, that, that at times the church can be a difficult place. At times it can feel like we're losing the battle. At times it can get frustrating and discouraging. At times we can talk far more about the color of the carpet than the lost guy next door. That's when I want to just like rip my hair out. be a lot of ripping. <laughs> but when somebody comes to Christ, you know what shuts down pointless debates in the church? An adult Baptism. It got quiet in here, didn't it? Do you know it ends the the long debate over what color the carpet should be? A new convert coming into the body of Christ. Where's the future of the church? I think it's in our kids. I also think it's in our neighbors down the street. Uh, when I do, which I think is probably one of the more impo- important uh, lessons, not lectures. I'm going to give on cultivating a culture of uh, evangelism. Uh, one of the points that I want to make there, and I'll just ever so, I'll tip my hand a little bit here, is to say that you know when we talk about going to the nations, like you see in the missionary work of John Calvin, here's a great little secret I'm going to let you in on: you don't have to go to the nations. They live next door. This is Southern California. It's hard to imagine a more culturally diverse, you can't drive here, right? Even to the top of this Mecca mountain without driving through the nations. Your nations are right beside you. They're on your iPad. They're everywhere. Okay? So what you had to do in the 1500s to get to people that didn't look like you or talk like you or think like you, right now all you've got to do is like walk your dog. And you will go by how many different nations as you take that walk? In a certain sense, it's it's gotten easier, and in a certain sense, it's gotten harder. So we need to continue uh, just to drill down and think about this a little bit more. Uh, Calvin believed wholeheartedly that Great Commission implied that the promises of the covenant were to go forward, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, until... Uh, the entire earth was covered with the glory of God. He saw this beautiful vision from Isaiah of God uh, sprinkling the nations clean, of God uh, spreading his glory for the end of the world. Uh, of this little company in Geneva, in fact, I'm not going to quote that, that's kind of long. But in short, uh, this little company was founded uh, like a like a fellowship, a Lord of the Rings type of fellowship uh, that was established. I saw like three people smile, that made me feel good. So the elector here (laughs) that was my best joke no one laughed at that i'm deeply offended that it took you that long to respond to that just kidding but they founded this company that stood uh, for promoting the gospel okay Uh, that the right way of salvation needed to be proclaimed to the end of the earth and that that's what the church was about calvin Uh, Quoted often, I I can't say this with confidence. There's probably somebody here that could do it better than I can. I'd love to answer the question: What was Calvin's favorite verse? Now, the reason why I ask that is I have this slight little concern, maybe even suspicion, that when I say Calvin or Calvinism, you think of a chapter in the Bible, and it's probably Romans 9. But from my limited impression, this is not a scholarly conclusion, my limited impression from reading an awful lot of Calvin, uh, he seems to quote what I read at the beginning from Matthew 9 a lot. Like a lot, a lot, a lot. And Matthew 9 is, excuse me, not, yeah, Matthew 9 is not Romans 9. Matthew 9 is, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful what dissuaded Calvin from retiring to the hills with his books and French wine well the harvest was plentiful but what's the problem the laborers were few there were all kinds of people coming to Christ and the providence of God and wanting to hear solid good gospel teaching the problem was they were dying the plague was killing them persecution was taking them And Calvin looked at an empty classroom and said, we've got to get students here. And we've got to train people for the mission field, for the church. The harvest is plentiful. the Laborers were few. Would it change your impression of Calvin if his life verse was from Matthew 9? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Would it change your view of him to think that that's really what he was about? And that fact, the fact that he believed in the sovereignty of God, contrary to his critics, did not dissuade him or discourage him from salvation. It did the exact opposite. Do you know what frees me, hopefully frees you as well, uh, to be bold for the gospel is because of the sovereignty of God. You know it's not because of you, right? If it was up to you to be smart, uh, to outmaneuver the unbeliever next door so that they'll come into the kingdom of God if it depends on uh, your ability to be winsome, sweet, or persuasive, if it depends upon you in any way, uh, wouldn't that be horribly discouraging? But if you really believe in your heart, God is not only sovereign and can save uh, jacked up people like them, but He can even use messed up people like me that are still healing or still growing. But because He's sovereign and He's got this, Calvin said, The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. It's that the laborers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might raise up even more that would go out and proclaim the gospel in Christ's name. Most of the people coming to the church at this time came uh, because the gospel is being preached not simply on the inside, but also being preached on uh, the outside. Uh, I was talking with a couple of brothers at the break, and I'll I'll probably say a couple of things while I'm here this week. They'll get me in a little bit of trouble maybe, but it's okay. I love you. You love me. We can can be kind to one another. I I don't intend to misrepresent or caricature uh, anyone, uh, but I I do want to just tell you a a little story. So I mentioned I did my PhD work in Holland. Dutch was my research language. Got to know some folks there and in Canada pretty well. And there is a little proverb in the church setting, Uh, connected to the school where I studied that went kind of like this. I don't like this. I'll tell you in advance, I I don't like it. The saying is this, we're a true church, the doors are open, let them come. Not okay. Do you want to know how Calvinists get reputations for things like I began this lesson with? It's from phrases like that. We're the true church. Oh, sorry, I've got to get more back back there. I've got to get all that, right? We're the true church. Just us. Just, that's it. <laughs> the doors are open. They can find their way here. It's not like, the, you know, it's on a street. Let, let them come. Now, if I'm going a little too far, forgive me. But that, that phrase concerns me. And I, I think we need to be careful you know, not to point it at, at any one people group. In fact, frankly, if that mindset exists within us, we ought to repent of that. And it probably exists in all of us to some extent, including me. Because there are times when we are so functionally passive. It's like we uh, live with that proverb. We're a true church. The doors are open. They're, they're, of course, they're free to come. So let them come. But that's not the way it works in the Bible. Like, if you believe that, and I'll I'll take the pushback, I'm a big boy, Uh, that's just not the way, uh, the whole Great Commission thing was not just build it and wait, right? That's several other secular paradigms. If we build, they will come. But the Great Commission is go. Pray to the Lord of the Harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers going out into the field and gathering the Lord's harvest, that's what is few. Okay, And so Calvin believed, as we ought to believe as Calvinists, uh, that we need to be going uh, out there and that we need to proclaim the Gospel to those that don't want to come. Some of us come kicking and screaming truth is never a welcome thing to a lost mind it's confrontational it's unnerving it's disquieting it's alarming and it's perfectly healthy if you're sick you need to be told why you're sick and how to be made well if you think you're well and you're sick you're simply deceived the world is sick the world has the plague And yet God is the author of life, resurrection life. Uh, There's a hymn that we sing that uses this line, we long to see thy churches full. As a pastor, you know, there's that sad feeling sometimes you walk into the church and there are the four people that love you most, right? Uh, There's those occasional days where you just sense, you know, I, I wish the church were more full. I wonder if people in the church feel the same way. Do you feel that way? Uh, do you wish? Do you, do you wish not not just that we'd have a full turnout? That's kind of pointless, but that people were coming to know the Savior and and coming to be a part of the best family on earth. I, I love the church. Our church, you should come and visit sometime. And where Saint Augustine, you got a oh, good. okay, we're gonna make this, okay? So there in Saint Augustine, there's a crazy, crazy OPC with a couple hundred people, and it's a very colorful church. Uh, it's got some wonderfully sweet people. It's got some kind of grumpy, cantankerous people. Um, it's got all kinds of people. It's got surfers. It's got guys in ties, guys in flip-flops. It's got the whole uh, package deal. And you know what it is? It's just a big, broken, beautiful family. It's a hospital where every one of us limp in week after week and we come to see Jesus because he's the good physician and we know we need help. We can't make ourselves whole and healthy. And so we come in and and the good physician, uh, he cares for our souls and he tends to our needs and we find that bind in common with one another and we leave there with a piece of bread that carries us through the week and reminds us that we'll make it all the way home because we have one with us who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Calvin saw evangelism as an eschatological endeavor. I'll explain what I mean by that. I know it's a big word. Uh, In other words, evangelism is something that the church needs to do until the very end of the age, until Jesus comes back and says, okay, we've got somebody supposed to say, ready, set, go, right, for our games. Do we have someone who says, it is finished. Because until Jesus comes back and says, it is finished, the game is still on. It's not a game though. Souls are on the line. Ultimately, God is sovereign over all of these souls. But Calvin believed that this work that we are called into is something we should be doing until the very end of the age. He said this, and I quote, the kingdom of christ began in the world when god commanded the gospel to be proclaimed everywhere and even today its course has not yet reached completion he said this in his commentary on zechariah he believed that till right up to the very end of the age a fruitful harvest of souls would come do you believe that keep asking this do you believe that it's a confessional kind of thing Do you believe that until Jesus comes back, we should be out telling people about Him? And do you believe that until Jesus comes back, He's going to continue to gather together a harvest of souls that He's not done? That even though it looks at times like uh, the church is in a rough spot, at the end of the day it's not because its Savior is still risen and victorious. And who wins? Right? Uh, We're all getting ready to play these games here in a little bit. Right now, you're starting to think about two things, lunch and who you're competing against. Am I a mind reader or what? But in the game that really counts, you know who wins. And the church wins because Christ has already won. That's the great confidence that we have in the gospel. Now, I, I want to end where I began, and I should look at my clock. I have no idea what time it is. It doesn't really matter to me. I have a very postmodern sense of time. You know, what's, what's 1130 to you might only be 11 to me. <laughs> and it, it feels like 11 to me. Even though it is perhaps 1130, it, it feels more like 11 to me. All right, now I've got to go back and look at my notes again. Okay, this is what I was actually supposed to say. Is that what time it is? All right. I'm not going to ask what time I'm supposed to end because then I'll feel, okay, what time am I supposed to end? Ouch. So I've got this little schedule thing, and he's apparently the keeper of such pointless information. But it reminds me of a favorite line of mine from Pirates of the Caribbean. You take these like rules, but to me they're more like guidelines. (laughs) All right. So wrapping up thought here. In Geneva, when, when Calvin's one one child died, I told you earlier, it's probably the most painful part of the uh, time we've had, uh, that he was mocked by people from his church. He was mocked by the Genevans, people outside of his church as well. You know, they viewed this as God's curse or something you know, along those lines. And Calvin had a really, really wonderful way of responding to that. Very gracious, very pastoral way. Much better than I could have done Uh, But he said, I would rather have one child in the Lord than a hundred children in the flesh. Now You might be thinking about that for a little while. It's a tough one. But you know what God gave Calvin? Hundreds of children in the Lord. And so I want to close with this question where are Calvin's children today? Now, I'm not talking about just those that believe in the five points of Calvinism. Calvin, by the way, never heard of those five points. <laughs> this came like quite some years later. Uh, but where are Calvin's children in the sense of being those who, what did he give his life for, my view? Training people that would go out and proclaim the gospel. Training those that would go out as laborers in God's harvest until kingdom come, laying down their life so that others might take hold of eternal life. So I'll look at some of you who are young. You are Calvin's children. You're his great, 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 pretty good, great, great grandkids. And the mantle is laid to you. You are Calvin's children. Uh, we have received... Uh, an inheritance that in the eyes of some is a great hindrance to evangelism. And what I'd like to say to them is, you don't know the real John Calvin. But maybe to all of us, today might be helpful to get to know the real John Calvin a little bit better. And if we're going to identify as Reformed folk, as Calvinist folk, uh, we need to renew our love for the Lord of the Harvest. And reconsider our place in that plentiful harvest. Because to this day, beloved, the harvest continues to be plentiful. But the laborers, where are they? Alright, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for an inheritance that we have received one not of ourselves but one that we have in Christ. We thank you for faithful servants in history past like Calvin who uh, would say that in so many ways uh, they have been imperfect servants in your kingdom and vineyard And at the same time O oh Lord how you were pleased to prosper their labors. Uh, we ask Lord today that you would help us to find in our hearts faithful children not to John Calvin but ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. But insofar as Calvin taught and stood for good and faithful things, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do the same, that you'd help us to repent not only of our sins of commission, but perhaps as well our sins of omission and uh, the little places where atrophy might grow in our hearts. We pray that you help us to be grateful for all that we have, not only in Christ, but in our churches, in our families, and that you would help us to desire to see many people one to similarly beautiful things. In a little while, we'll get to eat together. Help us, O Lord, to continue to think our thoughts after you and to encourage one another with our conversation. In Christ's name we pray, amen.